Well, good morning. Well, for any of you that don't know me, my name is Brock Ashley, and uh, I have the pleasure of being with you up here this morning because Pastor Mike is actually on vacation. So depending on how this goes, you can look at that as a blessing or a curse. But I'm glad to be here with you today. So uh, this morning, we will be uh, turning to the ninth chapter of the book of Proverbs. And as you make your way to the ninth chapter of Proverbs, let me just uh, go through a little bit of a rundown of what's taken place so far in these first eight chapters. And the reason for this is the ninth chapter is really a culmination or an ending to this uh, back and forth that Solomon has put us through between wisdom and folly. But he started off in chapter 1 and verse 7 stating that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So we get this idea that the fear of the Lord is what really starts this process of us gaining knowledge in our lives. And then in verse 20, he begins to personify wisdom as a woman. And many of you ladies in here would agree with that personification. In chapters 2 through 4, he continues this theme of lady wisdom, and he really offers instruction as he uh, addresses his son in a lot of this. So he's trying to offer instruction to his son is what to gain from wisdom. Then in chapters 5 through 7, he deals with the opposite side, with lady folly, we'll call it, as he tries to deal with the attraction of sin and really the downsides and the consequences of what sin is. And he portrays that, uh, that woman is a harlot or a prostitute. So then in chapter 8, he picks back up on this idea of wisdom, of, of being a female. And then at the end of that, starting in verse 22 of the 8th chapter, uh, the Lord actually begins to be personified. So Jesus Christ, we get a, a prefigurement of Jesus starting in verse 22 of chapter 8 from last week. And at the end of it, what we come to is to love God is to hate evil. And on the flip side, to hate God is to love evil. So that's really the decision that we're left with as we come to this culmination of this topic between good and evil. So we've got this presentation, these two invitations we're going to look at today between Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. So I've entitled this Two Princesses. For any of you that are children of the 90s, you can appreciate a good Spin Doctors reference. And any of you that are not Jam Band fans, sorry about that. You can question my wisdom for the rest of this. So, we're going to begin in verse 1 this morning, if I can operate the clicker. There we go. All right, starting in verse 1 of chapter 9, we see this invitation begin. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. So we begin to get this imagery put together of this house with seven pillars. So a very grand, large home. And a pillar, as you know, in your home is really a spot of strength. So that's a place where load is, is bared in your house. So the uh, other thing that we notice is the number seven. In the Bible, numbers are always important. The number seven is the number of completion. So what we get on another level is this idea that in wisdom we can find complete strength. Okay? Now if you would turn with me back to the book of James... In chapter 3, and as we make our way back to the third chapter of James, you'll recall from previous weeks that the book of James is actually our New Testament uh, book of wisdom. Much like Proverbs is the Old Testament wisdom book, James is the New Testament wisdom book. And what James says in chapter 3, in verse 17, as he describes godly wisdom, but wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, 
full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. So you have here laid out for us actual seven pillars of strength that wisdom has. But the first thing that it is, it's not necessarily a pillar of strength, but really a defining characteristic is it's pure. And what it literally means here is free from defilement. Okay, now we know that at the time when Adam and Eve sinned and sin entered the world, that everything was defiled. Not just themselves, but even the ground, the animals, the plants, everything in this world began to die. It was corrupted. So what we learn by logically from this is that pure wisdom cannot come from anything in this world. It cannot come from uh, Mother Nature, Confucius, sorry about the farmer's almanac. You're not going to find true godly wisdom in any of these sources. It can only come from God the Father. It can only come down from above and then through us at that point. So that's the first thing that we see here is this beautiful home, these seven pillars laid out. And then in verse 2, as we go back to Proverbs, and we look at this invitation from Lady Wisdom, we see her preparations as she begins to prepare her house. She has slaughtered her meat, she has mixed her wine, she has also furnished her table. So she's made these very extravagant uh, preparations for us to be able to be welcomed to as this invitation is extended. And what we get is a picture of a really beautiful wedding, right? Has anybody ever been to a really great wedding? I mean, not one of the hokey ones that isn't any fun, but I mean, one that's just like you can tell love is in the air. Grandpa's out there doing the electric slide the best he can or the robot, you know, and and it's a little bit embarrassing, but it's still entertaining at the same time. Like the food is just right. And that's what we get, this beautiful wedding feast. And in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus gives this parable of the wedding feast as he talks about God actually inviting people into this beautiful feast where Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And that's the same kind of parallels we draw as we see that everything has been thought of, that Lady Wisdom has mixed her wine. And in mixing her wine, there's only two reasons to mix wine. One is to cut it, to actually add water, to thin it out. So uh, that's not a good reason to, to mix it, but they would do that at the end of these feasts in order to make it last a little longer because everybody was having a little too good of a time. But you recall when Jesus actually turned the water into wine, that's why they were so surprised that now you've saved the best for last. The other reason to mix wine was to actually enhance the flavor and actually make it better. And that's the case that we have here is that Lady Wisdom has actually mixed her wine to make it even better than what we have here. So God is really preparing everything for us. And she's furnished this beautiful table. So then we've got all this attention to detail in her preparation. Now let's look at her plea. In verse 3, she has sent out her maidens. She cries out from the highest places in the city. Now if you're going through our daily Bible reading plan, we just read this week where uh, Jesus actually sent out the disciples to go witness and to, to bring this message to people. And the message that he sent them out to deliver, I think you can make a strong case that it's these next few verses. That in verse 4 through 6, we see, Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Come and eat of my bread and drink the wine that I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live, and go the way of understanding. That's really the gospel message that's interlaced inside the book of Proverbs. To forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. So we see these parallels. And as we look back in Jesus' own words in the Gospel of John, in the 6th chapter, in verse 48, what Jesus said is this, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. 
This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So this is the bread that we begin to see that's laid out from Lady Wisdom in her beautiful feast. So back to uh, the ninth chapter of Proverbs, and we look at uh, these last few verses of her plea. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. So the first thing we see is scoffers, or people that refuse wisdom, are not welcome. That they are not welcome at this wedding feast. And I think what's interesting about this, if we look at Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7 of Matthew, Jesus says this about sharing these things that we've been given, this wisdom that we've been given from above. He says this in chapter 7 of Matthew, in verse 6, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, that seems like an odd passage right there, but what he's really saying is that if you've been given some godly wisdom, be careful who you give it to. Because if you continually in your life try to share these things, these, these precious things that you've been given with the pig and the swine, they're going to trample on you, right? And we've, we've had people in our lives, I'm sure, that you've tried to share things with and, and uh, indwell knowledge and wisdom into their life, and they just refuse to take hold of it. Well, at some point in time, you got to quit getting trampled on, right? But on the other side, when there are wise people, if we look at what he says about the wise, is that rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. So if we, if we give some of this wisdom to a wise man, he'll be even wiser, Right? How many in here like criticism? Anybody other than me? I love criticism. Heap it on. I mean, pile it on. Have you ever been to that job interview or not that job, uh, uh, the job review where you go in and they address all the things you stink at and they give you two or three things you're actually good at, but you don't remember any of the things that you're good at because all you can think of is all the things that you're terrible at? Yeah, I've, I've been to those before. That's a lot of fun. But what we, what we learn is from this is that that criticism is really very valuable. It's some of the most valuable information that we can get because if we process it in the right way and we realize that the purpose is is to actually make us better, especially when it comes from God the Father, that we'll actually be better for it. When I uh, worked at Rural King, I was in charge of construction and real estate. So as a part of that, I would have to fly out with a few other executives to these grand openings. And we would go out morning of and work all day And every one of these grand openings we would go to, the CEO would go around to different customers as we were, uh, you know, having this big to-do, and he would ask them, what are we not doing well? What can we improve on? Give me the bad. Tell me what we need to do a better job of. And most people were gracious. You know, very few people wanted to tell you anything bad. Uh, You know, we're giving away free stuff, and everybody's happy, so they're not going to just come and rip you. But almost every single time, there was always one little old lady and I would call her, very affectionately, Grambo. Grambo would not be afraid. She finally got her five minutes to unleash 
on this CEO of this company, and she just take the machine gun. She laid everybody out. I mean, everybody from the poor girl at the customer service to your popcorn stinks, your product stinks. Meanwhile, she's got a bunch of free stuff in her cart, but everything stinks. And rather than doing the dopey CEO nod that most people would do, where he just would go, mm-hmm. oh, yes, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, he actually was writing this stuff down on a legal pad. I mean, like a madman, just every word that fell off Grambo's lips, it was like it was treasure. And we would get back on the plane to leave, and I'm looking over there at him, and he's going back through his notes and typing out emails to people of things that need to be corrected, right? And, and this first time that he did it, I, I looked at him, and I said, what are you doing? Like, th- this crazy old lady is telling you this. You're actually rebuking people. I probably didn't use the word rebuke, but you're, you're actually trying to correct things. And what he said to me, it stuck with me. He said, Brock, nobody improves from a compliment. And now that's harsh. That sounds harsh. But there's also a lot of truth in that. I don't think that it's 100% true, but I think there is a lot that when we get compliments, a lot of times it just reaffirms what we already knew. And it gives us a good feeling. We feel like we can go and we can soar with the eagles. Look out, world, here I come. But the only way we're going to correct and improve is by taking on criticism. And sometimes the criticism that hurts the most comes from the people we live with, but it's also sometimes the most true. And uh, maybe it's people we care about. We really care about their opinion, and probably that's the reason in those job reviews that it hurts so bad is because I actually care about what that person thinks, even though I claim I don't. Um, It matters to me, right? And so what I encourage you to do is that as that comes up in your life is to process that information. Sift through it. Sift out the good and the bad because there will be stuff that's throwaway, but really look for the good things in there that you can improve, that I can improve. I don't know about you, but I've got a lot that needs improving. All right, now let's uh, move on to the next section as we look at Lady Wisdom's promise. All right, what she, what she says here in verse 10 is important, and I want to pull this out, is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So what is this fear of the Lord? If this is the beginning of wisdom, this is a thing that we're trying to actually attain. We want to be wise. We want to have, and we know that wisdom is knowledge applied. We want to have knowledge and we want to apply it in our life. What is this? Well, to me, it really comes down to these four things. It's first acknowledgement, it's then acceptance, it's then application, and it leads to adoration. And these, these four things, to me, really show this process that we work through as we work through the fear of the Lord. Because fear can be terrifying, for sure, but can also have a, an element of respect and reverence tied to it, too. And if you grew up Southern Baptist, and you can actually come up with four A's in a sermon that makes sense, you'd be so happy with yourself. I'm telling you, I've never had that happen before, so I'm, I'm new at this. I'm excited. There's four A's for you, folks. Okay. Um, the first one to start off with, acknowledgement. Acknowledging God's power and our lack of power. That's the place it has to start. Now, as I'm sitting up here, I am taking in oxygen, and I'm, I'm breathing, hopefully. I'm breathing up here, and as I do that, I take in oxygen and other gases, and that is distributed at a cellular level, and that oxygen is actually exchanged then for waste, for carbon dioxide, where it then goes back through the bloodstream to my lungs where it's exhaled, and I exhale that waste. That is called the gas exchange process. I'm doing that somewhere between 12 and 20 times every minute. Check my math. I think that's somewhere between 17,000 and 30,000 times a day. I do that, and that process occurs. 
So if I decide, sitting up here on this swivel stool with all my athleticism, that I am going to stop the gas exchange process from going on in my body. I've determined it in my best Ken Graves voice, I will stop the gas exchange. If you don't know who Ken Graves is, that'd be way funnier if you did. But <laughs> I will stop this process right now. I'm going to hold my breath. <gasps> and as I'm holding my breath, you're going to see my face turn a couple shades of red, probably a shade of blue, and I'm going to flop over here on the floor off the swivel stool. At which point in time, the gas exchange process is going to resume just the way it did before I made my great declaration of power. You see, as many things as I try to hold on to in my life and claim that I am in control of this thing, I'm not even in control of the most elemental, the most simple involuntary processes in my own body. But you know who is? I'm glad you asked. Let's look at Isaiah 42. Let's read from God himself about this. So in Isaiah 42, verse 5, through the pen of Isaiah, words from the Lord, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. You see, your very breath and this whole process is controlled by God Almighty. And once you understand that and you begin to acknowledge that, that's the first piece. But it can't stay there. Right? We can't stay at that spot because, well, frankly, you'll be miserable. And if you run across anybody that is in this stage where they are between acknowledgement and acceptance, you will find some of the most miserable people you ever come across. Because they realize that I'm not in control like I thought I was. God is, but I'm not going to accept it. I'm not going to deal with it right now. And in James chapter 2, verse 19, what he says is that even the demons believe and they tremble. We see as Jesus rebukes demons and, and exercises them out of people that they actually tremble and shudder at the fact that he is the son of God, but they won't accept it. So the next step here, and what's key, is acceptance of God and his will in my life. And for that, to give an example of not only acceptance, but these next few, I'd like you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. As you make your way back, 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 to 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see at this point in time in the life of King David, he is really having some tremendous victories. I mean, he is wiping out Philistines. He is taking wives. I mean, things are going good. He's like Timbuk3. Things are going great, and they're only getting better, right? So uh, that's the point that he's at. And he decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant out of the house of Abinadab, and he's going to bring it back to Jerusalem. And to do this, he throws a huge party. He invites 30,000 of his closest friends. He's got the music going. He builds this really cool cart, probably has the chrome wheels with the spinners on it. You know, I mean, a really nice cart. And they put the ark on it, and they begin to bring it back. So as this party's going on, they've got the Ark of the Covenant being brought back. The, one of the oxen slips, and as that happens, the ark starts to fall off of the cart. And Uzzah, the son of Abinadab, reaches out to catch it and stop the ark from falling on the ground, seemingly a good thing. But God strikes him dead in that moment, zaps him. I don't know if any of you went to a 4th of July party this year or had one, but uh, if God zaps somebody at your 4th of July party, it will shut that thing down faster than your parents coming home at a high school party. I mean, it just ends at that moment. And that's what happened here. The party ceased to exist. Not only was it very sad and troubling for David, but it also uh, was embarrassing. I mean, he invited 30,000 of his closest friends to this thing, and somebody just got wiped out by the Lord. 
So it's embarrassing. And then the next thing it was for David, if you look with me in verse 9, and David was afraid of the Lord that day. He had a real understanding and a fear of the Lord at that moment, right? But what you have to love about the life of David is he didn't stay there. He, he was upset, and he had some problems and some things he needed to work through with God, but he took it back, probably some months transpired, and he did what we need to do, and that's he dug into the Word for answers. And as they dig into the Word, they find, listen, we're not supposed to be taking the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. We're supposed to be having it on the shoulder of the Levites, on poles, and it needs to be about the Lord. It doesn't need to be about us. So instead, they come back again a second time, and the service looks much different. Probably in reality, that first service was a lot more about David than it was God. If he was here to admit to that, it had a lot to do with him. And this second service, in verse 14, I think what's interesting here is, then David danced before the Lord with all his might. So now the second time, every six paces, as these guys carry the ark, they are stopping and sacrificing to God, and David is dancing before the Lord with all his might, wearing a linen ephod. No longer does he have the very kingly robe and attire on, where it's all about me. Instead, he's dancing with all his might to the Lord. You see, as he went through this process, what started off as fear that he had to acknowledge, then moved to acceptance, and then application. How am I going to work this out in my life? And it left him in this spot of blessed adoration. And that's really where we need to get to. You know, as we work through the fear of the Lord and we try to understand our role and where we're at positionally with God, is that we have to get to a point where we realize he's in control and it really is a joyous spot to be. Because if he's in control of your life and he's running the show, well then you know he's going to work it out at the other end, right? We, we may have some problems and some things we have to address with him, but at the end of the day, that's really what we're after. We're looking for this relationship where we've got this adoration piece. And if you would, turn with me back to Psalm 30. This is a psalm that David, uh, some Bible scholars believe, wrote at this time when they actually brought the ark into the city. And look with me in verse 5. Some of this Jared read to start off uh, with this morning. He stole a little bit of my thunder, but I'm not angry. I'm forgiving him for it. We're we're exercising forgiveness this morning. In verse 5, For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Now, in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. There's a couple eyes, And as I said, David was doing pretty well. He was riding high at this point. Lord, by your favor, you made my mountain strong. You hid your face, and I was troubled. Some translations actually say, I shuddered. Very frightening. I, try, I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Now you see the process, right? Where David is at this point that he has realized, I am not what I thought I was. God was doing all the work. He turned away. I'm in deep trouble. And he went back to the Lord. He went back to the Word, trying to figure out what it is he needed to correct and do in his life to improve this. And it ends with him dancing in glorious adoration. And the payoff, the payoff here in Proverbs chapter 9, as we look at this, this final list of the things that Lady Wisdom is promising if you accept her invitation in verse 11 
For by me your days will be multiplied, and the years of your life will be added to you. If you are wise, you are wise to yourself, and if you scoff, you will bear it alone. So if you are wise and you're able to process this, then you are going to be very wise for yourself and for the people around you. And if you scoff, you're going to be left alone. So it's, it's a compare and a contrast, which we see a lot in the Hebrew poetry. So let's move on to the next invitation. This one from Lady Folly. In verse 13, we see her preparation. A foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knows nothing. And when I think of a foolish, clamorous woman, the first thing I... Has anybody been to the ball game before and sat next to that guy? The one with his chest hair shaved and just loudmouth? Like, I think of a clamorous woman, I think of that sports fan. Like, that's... Every time I go to a ball game, I get stuck next to that guy somehow. And we look at her preparations and realize she's, pre- she's prepared nothing. There's nothing listed here on her preparations. It's like going to a party at Delta Chi. You know, flounders drug out the you know, the cooler full of whatever he's prepared, and there, there's no, there's nothing going on there. And then we look at her plea uh, in verse 14. We'll read from verse 14 through the halfway through 16. For she sits at the door of her house on a seat by the high places to call out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. So what's her plea? She's actually sitting around, as opposed to Lady Wisdom, who's sending out her maidens trying to bring people in. And, and most of the commentary I read said that she's sitting around giving us a picture of laziness. Well, through these first few chapters of Proverbs, we see the rebuke on being lazy or being a sluggard. But I, I'd like to point out something else. I think part of the reason she can afford to be lazy is because sin is so attractive. That she doesn't have to go out and send people out to bring... Uh, to bring people into her fold and into her party because we, by our very nature, are so attracted to this sin. Because folly or sin, there's really only three plays in the playbook. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, what it says is that the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, those are the three things that Satan runs over and over and over again. In junior high football, uh, my coach, Coach Art Newton, a little bitty guy. We called him Yoda, but never to his face because he was angry. And you don't want to do that to a little angry man. But he only let us run three plays in junior high football. And he would laugh and say, no, you actually have six plays. You have dive right, dive left, off tackle right, off tackle left, sweep right, sweep left. So you got six plays, not three. And he would only let us run these three plays until we finally perfected them. Now, we got to the end of the season, and apparently we never perfected them because we still only had three plays. But we, were, we managed to win every game we played with three plays because we ran them to perfection. And that's really what we see here out of Satan. He only has to run these three things in our life over and over and over again because they're so attractive. He's so good at it. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And it's in our nature to be attracted to that. But the end result is always death that this compromise that we allow always leads to corruption in our life. Now, we have been taking the kids down uh, and camping in Lesterville on, uh, Twin, at Twin Rivers Landing, down on the Black River. Beautiful spot. And over Father's Day weekend, we decided to take them down to the river, let them play in the water. And there were a lot of people out and some festivities in the morning. And things were, you know, everybody's having a pretty good time, but nothing out of hand. So we decided to leave and take them back for lunch, and then maybe we'd take them back later in the day. 
So we leave. if you have four kids and you try to take them to lunch, by the way, that's not a 30-minute process. That's like a two-hour ordeal just to get lunch and get everybody, whatever goobers they got on their face wiped off and get them all the way back down to the river. Well, in that two-hour process, everybody else that was there was still there, and the music was just a little bit louder, and the things that were going on were just a little bit crazier and a little more obnoxious, and it had actually turned from the Black River to wild on the Black River. I mean, it was a little out of hand. And my dad made a comment to me as we were standing there. He said, what is it about water that makes people want to drink alcohol? Now, my dad has probably preached this to me my entire life and beat me down about this. And instantly when he said that, I went back in my head and I thought that, you know, as a young man, when you said that to me, uh, I looked and I saw this goofy looking guy over here that had no business talking to that really pretty girl. And for some reason, she was talking to him. And they all looked like they were having a really good time. They were actually having more fun than we were having because we were busy being grumpy about how good of a time they were having. So that's that attraction that I had. But what I never did fully understand until much later is what the promise of all that is. That the promise of that is in these next few verses. That in halfway through verse 16, And as for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, and that her guests are in the depth of hell. See, I didn't have an understanding of that. All I saw is my dad being a grouch, that everybody else is having a better time than we were, and that I wanted to be a part of that. But after years passed, and I had some real struggles with alcohol, I realized this, that what it says is that bread eaten in secret is pleasant. If any of you have ever battled an addiction or battled something in your life like that, you know that what starts off being a party and being a whole lot of fun always ends up with you doing it alone, or being by yourself. There's loneliness to that, right? And that's the point that you have to get to as we're trying to address this, especially with our kids, as I'm trying to lay this out for them. But I want to be careful too, because on the flip side, I don't want to be that grumpy old guy that's standing over there on the corner while everybody else is having fun going, hey, you need to not do that. Look at all that fun they're having. Shame on that fun. We will have no fun. No fun will be had. Therefore, none of you will be lost. No. In fact, what I want to be able to share with them is on the other side of this is, listen, there is an abundant Christian life that can be had. There is glorious adoration that you don't have to go through the same pain that I went through because when the party's over, guess what? They're going to feel like a truck hit them. They're going to feel like they've been beat down. They're not probably even going to remember what they did or how great a time it was. Like There needs to be some honesty, and at the same time, on the other hand, listen, guys, there's a better way. There's... We can have fun as Christians. We can go to a barbecue and have a slip and slide that's on a wiffle ball court, and you can see an old man like me fall down and probably hurt my leg or hip or knee or head, and, and you can get a good chuckle out of that, right? Because there is fun in this life that can be had in an abundant Christian life. So that's the thing that really I was left with as we, as we pour through this section, that the promise of folly is really a promise of death. I'm not going to leave you there. So as we conclude and we look at this comparison between wisdom and folly, it's something important to take from this. One, that we cannot attend both parties. There's no invitation that's out there that allows you to go to both spots. And for that, in the book of Revelation, as Jesus is addressing the seven churches, in chapter 3, he addresses the church of Laodicea. 
And what he says to the church at Laodicea is this. In verse 15 of the third chapter of Revelation, he says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That is not a great spot to be in. If you think you're going to attend both parties and be a little bit cold and a little bit hot, it's going to end up in complete rejection by our Lord and Savior. But he doesn't leave it there. What Jesus says to this church in verse 19 as we move down, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Now we're back to this idea of he is working stuff through us. He is purifying us by fire. I will rebuke you and I will chasten you. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down by my father in his throne. He who has ears, let him hear. So if you've got ears, hear that. That Jesus wants this out of us. He wants us to change before it's too late. He wants us to, to have this blessed communion with him, to come back. That, that if you'll repent and come, I'll dine with you and you'll dine with me. Now we're back to this idea, this beautiful wedding feast, right? So, and if, and if you will do that, if you will overcome, just as I have overcame, then you too can sit at the throne with my father. I think that's fantastic. And as we end here today, look with me at the end of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12. At the end of Solomon's life, now Solomon is a guy that tried to attend both parties, and he tried hard. I mean, he had 700 wives, and he had 300 concubines. If you think you are going to go out there and live it up, I assure you, you will not do as good a job as Solomon did. He lived through everything, experientially. He tried it all. And this is what he came to at the end of his life, at the end of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 12, verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion on the whole matter, this whole argument between wisdom and folly. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. If you think you're doing something in secret, you're not. It's all out there for him to see, and he will bring it all back into play. And at the end of the day, what we're trying to get to is keep, fear God and keep his commandments, for that's man's all. That's really all he's asking us to do, is to fear him, which also leads us to this blessed idea of adoration. We can dance before him, and that's my prayer for you this morning. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this chance to uh, open your word today and to look at this uh, culmination in the ninth chapter of Proverbs and, uh, and really to study the differences between this wisdom and folly. Father, we, we admit, we confess that folly is attractive and sin is attractive for a season, but that it always ends up leading to corruption and condemnation. So I pray, Father, uh, anyone out there today that is working through this and trying to figure out if they can accept both invitations, that you will allow it to be made perfectly clear in their heart and in their minds that there is not. And if they're stuck in a spot of acknowledgement and not in acceptance, that you would uh, help them to see that the only way to have this blessed adoration, this beautiful communion with you, is to move beyond that and get to this point of acceptance of you. Thank you, Father, for what you've done in lives like mine that, uh, frankly, have no business being up here at all. I praise you for that. And I look around the room and I see a lot of other lives are in that exact same spot 
that know this loneliness that is promised with folly, that you have changed these folks, that you've changed me. Thank you for that, and uh, thank you for your word, and thank you for your love for us that is so abundant. In Jesus' name, amen.